Hello, I'm Dr. Roberta Shaler, the Relationship Help Doctor. And every week here on BBS Radio, my Relationship Help Show airs at 11 o'clock on Wednesday mornings, and you're invited to join in. You can call in and ask your relationship questions, particularly if you're in relationship with what I call a relentlessly difficult person. And that relationship might be your partner, your parent, your coworker, your boss, whomever it is. I'd be happy to answer your questions because you need particular insights, strategies, skills, and support in dealing with these very difficult people. In fact, I coined a word for them, and the term is hijackles. These are the people who hijack our relationships, always for their own good and their own purposes, and while scavenging them for power, status, and control. Intriguing? Do you know one? I bet you do. And you'd love to feel more powerful in their presence. So join me at Relationship Help Show every Wednesday morning at 11 Pacific Time right here on BBS Radio. And always remember, you can listen to the archives. Go to bbsradio.com slash Relationship Help Show. And I hope we'll be talking soon. Take good care. Welcome to today's show. There's a big question that I'm often asked by my clients, by people in my Facebook groups, and by people who come to my Facebook page, and they want to know, they're at their wit's end, they want to know, should I leave? Should I stay? How do I know when to leave? Should I even be thinking about leaving? Is that the wrong focus? What should I do? And that question comes up so frequently that today I put together a whole show for you that is about that question. It's a really big one, especially if you have children, because everybody's going to be affected and you have to think it through. Of course, if there's physical or sexual abuse, the answer is always go. Get help, go to the police, report it to somebody, get an attorney, get a restraining order, do something. But all the other areas are rather gray. And so you may be playing them over in your mind repeatedly, and it's kind of keeping you stuck or in a rut. You can't make up your mind because sometimes the relationship seems hopeful and it's going to work, and other times the relationship seems doomed and you you just want to crawl in a hole and pull the hole in after you. So I really understand that. I've been in those places too, so I really know that that's the truth. And you want to know, is there something I could do to save this? Am I not doing anything? Is it my fault? Who? How do I figure out what to do? Is it all about communication? Or have we completely lost connection with each other? And that frequently happens. So we will talk about those things. And today I'm excited to have a colleague and friend, Dr. Lee Bauckham, coming on for two segments of today's show. So we're going to be talking about what's the important piece of advice that he gives people to save their marriage because his website is savethemarriage.com. And that one key piece that he felt was most important is something that we talk about. And what can be done in the face of constant conflict? 
That's huge. And Dr. Bauckham has an interesting take on communication skills, so you'll certainly want to stay tuned and hear that as well. And in the second part of the interview with Dr. Lee Bauckham, I asked him, how do you know when a relationship cannot or should not be fixed? And what about a partner who seems to need to create chaos and uncertainty and drama all the time? So we have a very interesting conversation about that. In another segment, I brought you some ideas on a new phenomenon. It's It's been happening for the last 20 years in particular, but it's getting more and more press, and that's the phenomenon of living apart together. Many people find that that's a solution for them, that they still really love and appreciate their partners, but there are things about living together that keep showing up and causing problems. And when that happens, then you begin to doubt the entire relationship. And so you think about about splitting. But I wanted to bring you some ideas on living apart together. It's really a thing. They're called LATS, L-A-T-S, living apart together. And it's happening in many parts of the world, in particular Britain and the United States, I'm going to talk about today. And uh, it might be a solution for you. I, I know people who live, you know, two blocks apart, and the children go between the two houses and things got fixed really fast and really well. So that might be something that you'd like to consider. And in the final segment today, my personal opinions on how you know when to stay and when to go and whether you should be packing it in or packing more in. Um, It's always important to make your relationship a top priority. And that's difficult when you're juggling careers and finances and children and all kinds of things at the same time. But remember that that relationship is what is going to be left after the careers are established and after the children are raised. And you need to have taken care of it all the way along. So these are important pieces for you to consider on today's show. Can this relationship be saved? Should it be saved? How do you know? How do you know when it is time to get help? How do you know when all the help in the world will not change things and the help only helps you know how to leave? So very important pieces of the puzzle. And as always, you can go and learn more at my YouTube channel at For Relationship Help. Come to the website at For Relationship Help. If you're dealing with a relentlessly difficult person, you know, those people that I coined the phrase hijackles for, go to hijackles.com and um, learn more. Always start by learning more about yourself and about the possibilities for your relationship because you want to take this decision to leave very, very seriously and its impact on you, your life, and your children. So that's what we're going to talk to uh, to Lee Bauckham again about, and that's what we're going to talk about today. So be sure to stay tuned and share this episode with your friends. Talk soon. Life as a couple can be exciting and enriching. You both feel supported, known, heard, and appreciated. You know you're safe. Is that what you're experiencing? Does your partner have your back? Can you be vulnerable safely? Do you trust each other fully? Would you say you were emotionally intimate? 
If not, things can get much better. I'm Dr. Roberta Shaler, and I work with couples just like you all over the world by video conferencing. If you want a world-class relationship, learn how now. Visit forrelationshiphelp.com slash join and schedule a time to work together. Let's talk soon. forrelationshiphelp.com slash join. Is living apart the best way to keep your marriage together? Despite what everyone tells you, there's no right way to do marriage. Today, you may have more viable choices than ever before. One thing that hasn't changed is that everybody seems to have a judgment about how you're doing it, right? So don't let that sway you. Maybe you just can't do it the way mom and dad did. Maybe even mom and dad would have chosen differently if their world had offered more choices. You have options. It's absolutely okay to live the way you want to live, apart or together. You put the face on your marriage that optimizes your relationship. A satisfactory, thoughtful decision can can really produce an amazingly drama-free environment for you and your children. Living apart together, that's a real thing, living apart together, some people call it LATS. Living apart together is a conscious, intentional lifestyle choice. It's a way of doing relationship that, for many people, was unthinkable or weird in the past. It's not true anymore. What makes it different from what's called a commuter or long-distance relationship is that there is no imperative or desire to live together in the same home. Although careers, finances, and maybe your locations may influence the desire to live apart together, they're not the fundamental reason for it. Living apart together actually has its roots in what is best for the partners and for the relationship. It's not bound by any supposed right way to demonstrate commitment by living together. It's not driven by shoulds or cultural habits. It's for partners who know themselves really well. They're clear about their values, their priorities, and their vision for their lives. People who are comfortable spending quality time alone and want to. People who are self-reflective and self-aware, they know what they need. People who want the best for themselves, their partners, and for the relationship. And people who consciously choose what is optimal for keeping the love alive. Living apart together situations vary greatly. Uh, I know Selena and Doug chose to live just doors apart in a townhouse complex. The children go between the homes generally during the week, but with designated alone times for each partner to be child-free. Weekends are spent as a family together at one home or the other, And yes, there are those exciting clandestine nights when Doug and Selena find themselves creeping over into one another's beds too. And they find that the living apart together decision keeps the fire ignited. It gives each of them restorative time and gives them the best of both worlds. The children too, they have two happy parents who love each other and show it. And here's another example. Jason and Cindy have created a different scenario. 
They don't have any kids. They both work from home, but in very different ways. Cindy creates larger works of art, and Jason is an IT manager. Each has an apartment about 10 blocks from the other. They take turns sleeping over four nights a week. They're completely available to each other without the hassles of merging their lives. They've been living apart together for 10 years of their marriage, and they love it. Finding what suits you as an individual and as a couple takes reflection, honesty, and courage. Living apart together is not a cop-out. It's not a cop-out for handling the differences and difficulties of marriage. It's a conscious, wise choice to get the best of marriage, to keep your marriage vital and engaged and supportive and loving and respectful. And I'm using the term marriage to mean all committed relationships. As a long-time relationship consultant, <clears throat> excuse me, as a long-time relationship consultant myself, I've seen lots of couples who are not benefiting from living in the same house. They're at each other's throats battling over kids or finances or food or organization and sex way too frequently. They have colossal wars about toothpaste tubes and toilet seats. Could they negotiate a new, healthier way that would cause them to appreciate, respect, and miss each other a little? An alternative way that would give them space to regroup and restore to bring the best to their relationship? Yes, they probably could. Why would you consider a living apart together relationship? Maybe you absolutely love, adore, and are passionate about each other, but your lifestyles, your needs, or even your preferences are very different. Maybe one or the other of you have a deep need for more personal time, space, and quiet. Or maybe you've been in a relationship where there was that forced weeness that robbed you of any sense of autonomy and separateness. Or maybe you have very differing schedules that interrupt sleep patterns. Or maybe you decorate differently. Maybe you have wildly divergent ideas of beauty or order or material assets and you don't want to change Or, on the other side, maybe you have a desire for keeping the courtship and the mystery alive. But, if you have a deep love for your partner and prefer to keep the day-to-day life and infrastructure separate from that, you might choose living apart together. All of those things can help you benefit by sharing the joy of your love and passion for each other without all the irritants that those differences bring up almost daily when sharing a house. So it's wise to get some help from someone if you plan to do uh, this living apart together business because you need to mediate your arrangement. Some living apart together arrangements are not about different living spaces, but about different emotional spaces. They serve the needs of families where the parents no longer consider themselves a couple, married or not. They cohabit, maybe for financial reasons, and the needs of the children. They share financial, household, parenting responsibilities, even though they no longer have a romantic attachment to each other. Their arrangement is clear, and by agreement, they're emotionally free while living apart together. Even the New York Times has weighed in on the benefits of living apart together. And according to the studies of these people in the last five years in the United States and Britain, it's clear that most lats, people who are living apart together, are not married and are younger than 24. Partners between 25 and 44 are the next largest group. They may or may not be married, but they are committed to their relationships. 
They may choose to live apart for work, financial, or relationship reasons. Some have been previously married and want the joys of marriage without the day-to-day decisions and potential for trivial differences. How you live with your person is your choice. Do you remember in Grey's Anatomy how Meredith Grey talked with Christina Yang about being each other's quote-unquote person? Well, your partner is your person. Whatever the two of you decide is the right relationship for you as long as it lets you keep fulfilling each other's person requirements. Living apart together is not the right choice for everybody. And I'm sure you're thinking about that as uh, as you're listening. Would it work for me? Would it not work for me? Could I possibly bring this up to my partner? Maybe not. Maybe so. But it, <clears throat> living apart together is not the right choice for everyone. For some people, it keeps the marriage alive and thriving. And for others, only a more traditional relationship will satisfy and, and make you happy. So be honest with yourself and be honest with your partner. If either of you have concerns about jealousy, loneliness, sexual needs, or insecurities, a living apart together arrangement might be too risky for you to consider. That's okay. Know what's best for you both. Distance and intimacy can be great bedfellows, strange as it seems, If you base intimacy on proximity, how close you are to each other in space, then a living apart together relationship across the continent probably won't appeal to you. And there is no right formula. You do not, however, have to be in the vicinity of each other physically to have emotional intimacy that sustains and strengthens both of you. That comes from sharing your values, your vision for your life and relationships, your beliefs, and your purposes in alignment. And it comes from having a commitment to be honest and trusting and respectful in your communication with your partner. It's what leads you to make good decisions after the right living situation and about the right living situation. And you can always change it. So if living apart together sounds like it might be intriguing to you and it might be the best way to keep your marriage together, only you know. But do consider it. It might be just what you need to keep all the good things you love about your relationship and let go of all that puts a wedge between you. So think about it. Hello, this is Dr. Roberta Shaler. Are these stories and questions on today's show sounding familiar to you? Are you ready to say no more to the abuse from toxic people in your life? I'm so glad. You matter and you deserve to have real love, true love in your life. Love from yourself and love from others. Not that demeaning, discounting, and dismissive masquerade that a hijackal pretends is love. I can help you regain yourself, your self-esteem, your self-confidence after a life with a hijackal, whether it was your partner, an ex, a parent, or a child. Let's work together now. For individual sessions or small group coaching, visit forrelationshiphelp.com slash join. Talk soon.
Okay, here we go. And welcome to the second part of my conversation with Dr. Lee Bacham of SaveTheMarriage.com. We talked in the first part about how it is so important to begin to connect and to build some emotional intimacy, particularly when there's been some distance. Now we want to shift the conversation to the whole idea of what happens when you really realize and how do you realize that maybe this marriage is not the best for us? What do you think are the big signs that we have to notice? Well, I, I often say to people, you know, if you're thinking about working to save your marriage, the, the first thing are the no-goes, that this is not the one you want to save, and that is uh, abusive relationships. Physical abuse is pretty clear. Emotional abuse gets to be a little uh, more tricky. I have people say, you know, is this emotional abuse? And a lot of times they'll tell me what's going on. And it's more about the fact that they have lost track of their own boundaries. You know, they've only, they, yeah. they haven't been able to say that's not okay. And so the other person um, is pushing harder than they even realize. Then there are the ones when I say, you know what, that's just emotionally manipulative, emotionally abusive. That's another no go, but that that's a much more of a gray area in my mind. Physical abuse automatically for me is, is a stopping point. Oh, I so agree with you because physical abuse is absolutely a no. There is no reason on earth why your spouse should put his or her hands on you in any way intended to hurt you. Mm -hmm. And it's as simple as that. It's a big no-go. But what if they're not actually putting their hands on you? Let's talk about the more gray area of emotional and verbal abuse. What do you have to say are the markers for when you need to think this isn't going to work? Uh, when you've de- tried to do the boundaries and that doesn't work. Um, you know, when you have been very conscientious, because part of what happens in this dance of relationships is that we teach people how to treat us and allow them to treat us, that that all happens at the same time. And, and so part of the question is, is somebody reacting in a way that they have um, kind of been, been taught and allowed? And so the question begins to be, if you set the boundaries, can the person make a shift? Uh, and that sometimes is not, you know, it's a lot of people want to set their boundary one time. They get called a name, they try their boundary approach, they get called a name again, and they go, well, that didn't work, rather than recognizing that habits take a little bit of time yeah. to change. <laughs> uh, and so uh, my feeling is the first thing is to learn how to set boundaries, to work on setting boundaries for a bit, and seeing if there's a possibility for the person to kind of relearn um, the rules of engagement. Um, Yeah, I think just to want to jump in there because setting boundaries is not something everybody knows how to do. Most people don't. You know, if you've come from a family where boundaries were not set and you don't know what healthy boundaries are, maybe we should just talk about that for a moment. So a person knows how to set a healthy boundary. What would you say about that? Yeah, so for me, a boundary is a no. I don't want to be treated that way. You may not treat me that way. And so it's always a no about how somebody is treating you, not how they are in the world. A lot of times people want to use boundaries. I was doing a conference on boundaries and this woman came up and I could tell I was in trouble. It was the second week and she was marching straight at me and I went, oh, here we come. And she stepped up and she said, your boundary thing didn't work. And I said, well, what didn't work? And she said, I did that boundary thing to my husband. And it didn't change him. And I said, that's not the goal of a boundary. 
Yeah, the I'm, goal of a boundary <laughs> is so that you're not treated in a way that you don't want to be treated. How they are in the rest of the world, you can't control that. Boundaries no, that, aren't about control. No, that's, that's for you to observe what they do when that happens. When you set a boundary, then you observe what the other person does. Yeah. Yeah. So we talked of, uh, and so one of the things I always do is that the step process, the first thing you, is you let the person know they're doing that. And sometimes they don't know. Um, you know, you say, hey, do you realize that you're calling me names? They may not have any idea. Do you realize that you're raising your voice at me? They may not have registered that. Um, I know that a lot of people bring those habits from childhood right with them and they get away with it and it works. And so they keep doing it. And so the first thing is to let them know. And a lot of times just doing that, the person says, you know what? You're right. I don't need to do that. And they abide by it. Sometimes you have to go to that next step where they say, I do realize that and I mean to. And the, the next one is to make a request. Please do not you know, call me names, raise your voice. I always say raise your voice rather than yell. Because if you say, please don't yell at me, there's a debate that's going to happen about the definition of yelling. <laughs> when am I yelling? I'm not yelling you know, as, as the voice goes up. And so you may not raise your voice at me. Please do not raise your voice is the you know, that middle phase. The third phase is you may not raise your voice at me. You may not call me names. Then there's got to be a consequence. And the consequence doesn't have to be, or I'll divorce you, or I'm going to move out. It could be, if you're, if you continue to speak with me with a raised voice, I'm going to leave the house for a couple of hours while you cool down. Right. And so that's, those four steps are, uh, you can walk through them if you know that you can do that fourth piece, which is the consequence. Yeah. And it's very important to have those consequences because we, we, we want to have latitude in the consequences. And what I mean by that, not that they're not immovable, but that you have, you have some versatility in setting those consequences. Like you said, it's not my way or the highway. It's not do that or don't do that. And I will leave or stay. It's I may have to leave the room or I will not respond to you until you change the tone of voice. And, and I'm just going to fix that right now. It's often not the tone of voice. Because so many times I find that the couples that I work with, and I'm sure you find that too, is that they get all wrapped up in the delivery and they're no longer hearing the messages. Mm -hmm. So one of the ways they made a defense to keep themselves out of solving any problems is to say, well, I don't like the way you talk to me. And then they won't have a conversation about the actual issue or the message. Yeah. They just want to stay on that. But as a good example of how to set a boundary, I think you did a great job. So those four things are really important. But how about dealing with people who are psychologically predisposed to creating drama and chaos and making life difficult? What do you say about figuring out whether you're with one of those? Yeah. Well, one is whether it's um, uh, universal for them. Yeah, if you watch them with their friends, are they doing that? We watch them with their family. Are they doing that? If they are that way consistently, that moves it out of the relational realm and it becomes uh, a personality piece for them. That doesn't mean they can't you know, figure that out if they really wanted to. One of the things that I've, I've recognized that more recently is the more psychologized our culture has become, the more people love to label their spouse with some diagnosis. Oh, yes. And that's not always an accurate diagnosis. No. You know, they, they will often tell me how they're married to a psychopath or a narcissist or a borderline, and sometimes they are. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. But many times it's because they've become so conflicted in the relationship that uh, they have decided that the spouse is the issue. And so part of what we're looking for is if it really is that piece of the personality, it's going to be everywhere. Uh, it's not just in the relationship. If it's a conflicted relationship, but they have friends that they have stable relationships and you don't see that somewhere else, then you can begin to, to ask the question, is this more about the dance that we have with each other? If, however, they do that consistently across the board, there's a, at least a higher likelihood that that diagnosis may be uh, more factual. You know, I'm going to take issue with that one for this reason. Okay. <laughs> um, many, t- you know, my work is, is helping the partners and the exes and adult children of these relentlessly difficult people stop the crazy making in their life. And here's one of the things that happens that's counterintuitive to what you just said, because what you just said makes ultimate sense. But if you look at hijackos behaving with other people, they will have great relationships with them and all of the abuse will be at home. And it's so crazy making because then you go to someone else and you try to explain to them that this is happening to me at home and they say, oh no, that person is the salt of the earth. So they can be behaving in different ways with you than they are in the community or with their families. And that that's one of the things that I think we really have to watch out for, Lee, because it if we look at them and they're behaving wonderfully with everyone else, we will then, of course, and it's a good idea to be self-reflective and say, am I doing something that other people are not? But if if the answer to that is no, I don't think so, then we, ha- we have to recognize that hijackals are going to make everything our fault and they're out to have power and control in the relationship. And when they're doing that, they're likely not doing that to other people. They've got that saved just for you. I'll leave that in your expertise. Um, <laughs> I, I have generally found that if they start looking around, there are other relationships that have been the same as theirs and their circle. That it's, um, It may not be universal, but it certainly isn't isolated to one. That's, that's my experience, though. Well, I, I would agree with that. Certainly, like I tell my clients, if that's happening and it's and Look at look at their relationship with their parents mm-hmm. and look there first mm-hmm. to see if how that relationship is playing out because that's the one that's most likely going to be the one that's similar to yours mm-hmm. if you're having a great deal of difficulty. But just remember <laughs> that if you are with one of these people, and I absolutely agree with you, all these people going to the Google goddess and deciding that their partner is a narcissist or a psychopath or whatever, don't do that. Don't do that. It's not helpful because then you make it all the other person's fault. Mm. Like that person has a label, that person has a problem. And there you are in relationship with them and it's not going to go anywhere good. yeah. Yeah. So important to recognize. So In power situations, like the ones that we're discussing, where things are going sideways, can improved communication really help? Well, I'm not big on the communication theory. Uh, I've uh, sat with lots of people who said they need to learn to communicate better. And my observation is I understood every word they said. It was (laughs) not an issue in communication. Perception was an issue between them. And uh, so part of uh, where I focus my energy is less about teaching communication skills and more about looking at how the couples are perceiving each other uh, and how we change that um, for ourselves and how we begin to to work towards uh, having the perceptions around the relationship changed. 
I really wanted you to say that because I agree with, <laughs> I agree with you so wholeheartedly, but you know, I've read what you've written and I think you say it so well because we have this idea that communication skills will be the panacea for everything. So then we just fight better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so we're a more intelligent fighters. Well, that's mm-hmm. not really going to help us get to the goal that we have in mind, which is to, to be loved and respected, to be in a relationship that's honest and safe and, and uh, caring. These are really important things. So Lee, I am so glad that you were able to come on the show today. Tell Thank us quickly about your new book. Well, there's a, a new book and then there's a new book about to come out. So the, the book that is now out, that came back out in March is Thrive Principles. Thrive Principles have, has 15 strategies for how you build a thriving life, um, no matter what's happening in your life. So um, it, this is not a uh, life has no bumps in the way, but how do you deal with those bumps and let those bumps uh, be the ways that you grow into a more thriving life? Um, in April, we'll come out uh, the book uh, about the immutable law of living and the immutable laws of living are uh, how we make life easier for ourselves by not getting in our own way but that's that will be in a few more months it comes out as a uh, ebook in january so exciting and thanks for being so prolific because you help so many people (laughs) well thank you my guest today has been dr lee bacham of savethemarriage.com by all means go over there and learn he has gold for you and he has saved so many marriages so uh Come back and visit us another time, Lee. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks. No matter what's happening right now, life can get better. If you have a good relationship, it can become great. If your relationship is in trouble, we can find a solution. The good news is that it's in your hands to start. The not-so-good news is that it takes time, new insights and skills, and a whole bunch of willingness. But who would settle for less? Not you, right? Good. You want to feel seen, heard, known, accepted, and appreciated. You want honesty, safety, trust, respect, and reliability, too. Read my book, Kaizen for Couples, available for download at couplesbook.com. Start there, and let's talk soon. I'm excited today to welcome a colleague of mine. We've been talking together for years, and Dr. Lee Bacham has just written another book, and he's written so many that we'll talk about that, but I'm excited to have you here today, Lee, because we're going to celebrate your new book, but also because we have a really important conversation to have about saving our marriages and what we can do when we're really faced with relentlessly difficult people. So let me tell folks a little bit about you. I'm going to read your your bio here. Dr. Lee Bacham is the creator of the internet marriage program, Save the Marriage. Dr. Bacham has over a quarter of a century, 25 years plus, (laughs) of experience helping couples and individuals learn to thrive. Dr. Bacham is trained as a therapist and life coach, and in addition to therapy and coaching, he's provided consultation for organizations and businesses. He's a popular speaker on a number of topics relating to relationships and thriving, and he has been married for 28 years and enjoying 
all the things that he writes about. So, you know, he's tried them at home and they work. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm happy to have you here again, Lee. Roberta, thanks for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. You know, you've got so much on your website. And for those of you who want to go, um, just go to um, savethemarriage.com and you can see so much of what you have and so many interviews. Um, and so they're there for you too. So you know that I want to talk about the more difficult side of saving the marriage because sometimes we don't recognize the power that we have to save our marriages. And sometimes we have to recognize that we don't have the power. So I want to start by saying, you know, you've helped so many people. I've read the testimonials on your website, and I know that that's true. So what, what would you say is the most important piece of advice that you can give anyone if they really believe that they want to save their marriage? What's the most important thing? Uh, uh, let me, can I put two in? Sure. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Let's start with a broad approach that uh, one, one of the things that a lot of couples miss is how important the connection is, that that's the lifeblood of the relationship. And uh, unfortunately, connection is under assault on a daily basis. And, and so uh, a lot of couples get into what I call the pause button marriage. You know, they, they thought they hit pause because of kids, career, training, whatever. And they figured they would come back to it at some point. And then when they come back and they hit the pause button to unpause it, they realize that the disconnection has happened right. and they, they weren't focused on the connection. So the number one ingredient of a successful marriage is connection. Now you and I will talk some about unhealthy connection along the way, I'm sure. And what that means with uh, some of the other pieces of that puzzle, but that's, that's a big piece. The second piece is um, about responsibility and that's, that's a very loaded term. Um, so let's unpack it a little bit. When I talk about responsibility, it's the ability to respond. Uh, a lot of people think when I say responsibility, they're saying, you know, it's that blame. It's from that childhood experience of the parent coming in and saying, okay, who's responsible for this, which is really a code of saying, who's going to get in trouble for this. Right. Uh, and when I'm talking about responsibility, it's being able to say, I can change the, the direction of this uh, myself. I can choose a different direction. And so when, when there is a problem in the relationship, it's usually based in that disconnection. It, the connection has been so strained that now the, the couple doesn't feel the connection enough. And when both people are feeling that, neither one feel necessarily like jumping in and working to save it. And that brings in that second piece of somebody saying, you know, I'm going to be the responsible one here. I'm going to choose a different direction. So a good image of that responsibility is if you're in a house that's on fire, it's not the time to say who, who set this on fire. It's not the time <laughs> to say, how did this happen? It's the time to say, I'm going to take responsibility of getting myself out and anybody else I can and any valuables I can. That's, that's the difference between the two. Well, that's a great metaphor for it. And, you know, what you were saying about losing the connection or pressing the pause button in our relationship, thinking that it'll all be there to pick up and go on after our excessive responsibilities of child raising and career building are over. I often say to people when they tell me that they're, they have the empty nest syndrome, I often say, no, it's the dinner table symptom you have forgotten who the person at the other end of the dinner table was because you've been focused on all the people in between. <laughs> yeah, there's a buffer that happens with kids. Right. And, and the buffer is, uh, for some people, it helps them reduce the conflict and the anxiety of being 
in that connection. The problem is when you take away the buffer, suddenly <laughs> um, that's you're, you're left staring at each other across the dinner table or on the couch or wherever that happens. And you realize that the buffer zone no longer being there is for some terrifying, but there's also the emptiness that mm-hmm. sometimes we've gotten those connection needs met through our kids rather than uh, through our spouse at that point. We, we have become parents, not not a couple anymore. And maybe it wasn't the connection itself. It was the illusion of connection because they were often triangulating through the children. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that is, there's, uh, so I also talk about the fact that we have, we all have two basic fears in relationships. One is of intimacy and the other is of abandonment. And our kids create the buffer of that. You know, when the kids are there, abandonment's not, quite so acute because you're spreading out that connection and the intimacy is not so pointed. The fear of intimacy can kind of be buffered because you've got some other people to spread it. And then when suddenly they're gone, um, then you have both of them suddenly pouring in. And the problem is couples do a dance between intimacy and abandonment fears uh, that end up terrorizing each other even further. (laughs) So one person's abandonment stuff triggers more of a fear of intimacy and vice versa. Yes, and and many of us don't actually take the time to recognize that we have fears of intimacy or abandonment. We don't even want to admit that to ourselves because that would take some work, that would take some introspection. And one of the gifts that we can always give to our relationship is to do the work on ourselves. Mm -hmm. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, that's that responsibility piece. Yeah, exactly. And and if I don't know who I am, then I don't know who I am as a responder to the relationship. And therefore, I can't explain that to my partner. And yes. when I can't explain that to my partner because I can't explain it to myself, then we're, we're going to have a communication issue. And I know that I watched one of your YouTube videos and you said you were the breakup stopper. <laughs> so I had this image of a doorstop. So what did, what did you mean when you say the breakup stopper? A lot of times breakups are um, more about inertia or momentum, one or the other, in that direction. You know, inertia meaning they're not moving anywhere. They're just kind of there. And so eventually somebody is in so much pain that they take action. Sometimes it's just the momentum that nobody's changing course. They're, they're headed towards that, that end result. And uh, so part of what often happens for people coming to me is they've had a spouse who said, you know, I love you. I'm not in love. Or they've said, I found somebody else. Or they've said, this just isn't working for me. I'm miserable. I mean, there are lots of ways that they come into our, our frame. And so what we're trying to do is stop the unnecessary uh, breakups. And, and as I've said very clearly, we're not here to save 100% of the relationships. There are some relationships that can't be saved, and then there's some that should not be saved. But we're looking for the ones that are abandoned too quickly, where the person just doesn't see an alternative. And, and so part of what often happens in, in a relationship is that nobody sees another possibility. Uh, it might be because they grew up in a household where there was no other possibility. You either lived miserably or you got a divorce. Those were the only two options. And, and bringing in another option the third option of working on things and restoring them often brings a slowdown to the momentum or pushes them off of their inertia into something better. Yeah, I, I think that that's a really good description, Lee, because 
we do tend to be kind of black and white about it. Either we're really together or we're really apart. But there is a whole lot of intervening variables in the middle there. And Mm -hmm. sometimes we're in a lot of conflict. And I know that you've said that conflict erodes connection. I've said it too. Um, But what happens if the conflict seems constant? So conflict creates disconnection, but it's also a symptom of disconnection. What I've noticed is that the more disconnected a couple, the more the little things irritate. (laughs) And so whatever might be manageable at another time uh, ends up being overwhelming because the connection can't hold it. Uh, And once that connection has eroded, everything feels like a conflict. Conversely, if a couple begins to connect, the conflict naturally begins to lower because they have a a stronger sense of being in this together and on each other's side. And so you have that back and forth as possible. Um, Interesting thing for me in conflict as I've come to think about it more and more is conflict really is a race to be the bigger victim. (laughs) You have to be playing that. Oh, I love that. (laughs) (laughs) Say say that again. uh, Conflict is a race to, to see who's the bigger victim. You know, I'm comparing my victimhood to your victimhood. Um, if I'm not a victim, I'm not in conflict. And so there's always that basis. I used to say that the arguments were two different people with two different opinions trying to convince the other of it. And the more I've reflected, the more I realize that's, that's still true, but it's a race to the bottom of the victim pool that, <laughs> that really uh, fuels that, that conflict. I bet a lot of people listening can really relate to that. They don't want to, but they got yeah. it right away yeah. when you said that because it's sort of like whose truth is more true competition. Mm-hmm. Like I'm worse off or you love me less or I've been more poorly poorly done by. And and we get into that that victim pool, as you say, and the race to the bottom. Yeah. yeah, it's important to notice if we're caught in that, because there certainly is something we can do about that. You know, as Bob Newhart says, just stop that. All right. All right. <laughs> and, and you have the ability to do that. I mean, if you're listening and you're thinking, okay, well, I want my partner to go first. Uh, think about it. You could stop that. You could mm-hmm. be the one who has the power to stop that. And that would be a really good idea because that will help you feel powerful that you can make that contribution and you'll be empowered to do that. Um, we're going to talk in the, in the second half of this conversation about the downside of some relationships or better not staying together. But if you could say just something about how you build emotional intimacy in the face of the conflict, that would be a good segue into the second part. Yeah, I think there are three ways we connect. Uh, we can connect physically, emotionally, or spiritually. And a lot of times the conflict is happening in that emotional zone where you're, you're playing tug of war in the emotion. So you're not listening to each other and not uh, giving any uh, credence to, to the other person's opinion. And, and so the, a step would be to recognize that part of your task is to move towards your spouse emotionally. That, that would be a piece of that emotional connection. The second, physically, you know, something happens when humans touch and that capacity of um, even if it's just a hand on the back of how that changes us uh, biochemically, that's an important way we bond. And then spiritually to be talking about what are the bigger topics? What are the big issues at hand? So we can talk okay. more about that. Yeah, we sure will. So I hear the alarm. <laughs> li- li- listen to part two and, uh, and catch up with these issues. Talk soon.
Okay, I don't know what happened to this. I'm gonna have <laughs> it won't stop. Stop. <laughs> See, it's still going. All right, it went away. All right, let's set it for the second half now. We got so much to talk about. Look how fast the time goes. It's crazy. Hi, this is Dr. Roberta Shaler. Handling hijackles is exhausting. It's never ending. An endless cycle of crazy making, alienation, and constant drama. And cycles are difficult to step out of. I know because I've been there too. And that's why I reach out to you to offer the insight, skills, and strategies you need to heal. My small group programs, Handling Hijackles and Hijackle Recovery and Rediscovery, will shortcut your journey to healing, to save your sanity, and to stopping the crazy making. Visit forrelationshiphelp.com slash join now and let's talk soon. You may be asking yourself the question, should I stay or should I go? Is this relationship going to work or is it not? And what should I do? So it's a big question. And knowing the answer takes a whole lot of thinking. Unless, of course, there's physical or sexual abuse, then the only answer is go. Go to the police. Go to the court. Go to any lengths you need to protect yourself and your children. Go and go now. Don't think it's going to get better. It isn't. Go. But for most of you, going or staying is not so black and white. It's a whole lot of gray that travels from close to white sometimes when you're sure it's going to work and way too close to black other days when you're sure it's not. I think most people are hooked on hope, and you've probably heard me say that in another episode. And being hooked on hope is not a bad thing. We want to believe that things can be different, that people can learn, and relationships can change. And for the most part, they can. You have to learn how, and that takes time, money, and a whole lot of willingness. But you can, and it's worth it, because it's your life and the quality of your life. So you want to believe that things will work out, and you may even think that time will be a factor that will make it happen. Sure, that's true. If one person is going through a bad patch of life and the other recognizes and makes room for that, but too many people believe that time, time by itself, the passage of time will magically change a relationship. You can go on being and doing what you've always done and get a different result. Now, you know that even Einstein said that's the definition of insanity. It's not going to happen. We have to pay attention to the relationship, focus on the relationship, talk about the relationship, and make agreements about the relationship so that it can improve. It can appear to happen that time lets things improve, but that's where things get dicey. You might think that things are getting better or have at least settled down and not realize that the only thing that's happened was that you and your partner created more distance and less trust. So you talk less, so you argue less, but it goes along with less respect, less honesty, and definitely less intimacy. So don't be fooled by a lull in the action. If the air hasn't cleared and it hasn't been cleared on purpose, 
the problems have gone underground, and now you're sitting on a minefield. You have a false sense of security in that relationship. Is that possibly what's happening in yours right now? You don't want to face it. You don't want to do something about it. So you're just kind of accepting that it's pretty awful or that it will do and you're settling for the relationship. Remember your children are watching. Is that what you want them to learn about how a good relationship works? So maybe you have fewer fights, but you have less interaction. That's a sign that trouble is still brewing. And when you don't actually handle an issue between you, it will rise again. The Gottman Institute in Washington State did research that showed that the average couple has a problem for six years before they get help with it. What a colossal waste of time and life. There you are, both walking on eggshells around an issue, hoping it won't blow up, it won't erupt, when you could go and get help to resolve it. And instead, pretty soon there's another issue, and another issue, and another issue. So you really need to care enough about your relationship and care enough about yourself to get some help. If you have children, they're living in the problem. And that's just not fair, especially when you can do something about it. Think of what they're seeing. Think of what they're hearing. Children are at a different stage of brain development, so they're taking things in in a very different way. They don't have the brain development you and your partner have. You really need to learn about that. In my books and videos, I talk about five things that absolutely must be present must be present and constantly in focus for a relationship to thrive. And those five things are honesty, safety, trust, respect, and reliability. When those things aren't present, you need help. Honesty, safety, trust, respect, and reliability. How are you doing with that? Should you stay? If those five things are present most of the time, You've got a good shot at learning some new skills, getting new insights about yourself and each other, and you can figure out how to improve things because you have the basis of a healthy relationship. Should you go? If none of those five things are there, you're just sharing a physical space, not a relationship, and it might not be safe. When that happens, there's either too much tension and fighting or too little interaction and too much distance. So get help to discover whether you just don't know how to be honest or how to build trust. You can do that. If you don't respect each other, that's a little more difficult. You can sure get help to uncover why that's so and see if you can change your point of view by seeing your partner in a new light. But if after that, you simply have not gained new and mutual respect for each other in the relationship, you're damaging yourself and each other by staying. Leaving a relationship with a hijackle usually takes good planning. Often the hijackle has taken over control of the finances. I've had clients whose partners have gone behind their backs and managed to persuade even bank officials to remove their names from house titles and cars and investments and even tried to have it done to their pensions. It's amazing how often that happens. 
And that means that if you want to leave a hijackal, you need to start now looking at your actual financial situation. You must gather the strength and the courage and all the assertiveness you can muster and create a financial support system for yourself. Remember that the money that has been earned within the relationship is shared. It's not your partner's alone. Work from that premise and make sure you have or create access to funds. So should you stay or should you go? Well, the truth is only you know. However, I can help you if you want my help to figure that out. And I hope these ideas I've shared with you will help with that decision making. It's really important to think about the value of your life. You matter. You deserve to be in a relationship where there is honesty, safety, trust, respect, and reliability. Contact me at forrelationshiphelp.com if you'd like to talk further. Talk soon. There you have it. If you want more, you can work with Dr. Shayla directly. She's eager to help you resolve your relationship issues. Have a question? Call in early to next week's show to talk with Dr. Shaler on air. Get her expert insights and advice by subscribing to her blog, newsletter, and YouTube channel. We're here for you. Don't be a stranger. Join us again next week. And in the meantime, visit forrelationshiphelp.com.